Hi, welcome to Creeks to Peaks the Understory, the podcast that highlights West Virginians, both near and far, who are doing amazing work in their respective fields, many of whom you may not even know about. Our goal is to bring your attention to these individuals, their stories, and how they connect to the state. In forestry terms, the understory means everything underneath the canopy, and those are exactly the people we're trying to highlight. Maybe not household names, but stars in their own right. So join us as we talk to our guests about who they are and where they come from. This podcast is produced by Flag Spruce Initiative, a West Virginia-based nonprofit whose mission is to invest in and advocate for the education, environment, and economy of West Virginia, or what we refer to as our three E's. To donate and find out more about Creeks to Peaks the Understory and Flag Spruce Initiative, visit www.flagspruce.org or follow us on Instagram. Hey everyone, Michael here. Our guest today is Nick McGarry. Nick, a native of Buckhannon, West Virginia, is a former decorated Special Forces non-commissioned officer and a veteran of the War on Terror. Today, Nick resides in North Carolina where he works as an Executive Vice President for True Velocity Ammunition, but still remains passionate about West Virginia, Appalachia, veterans' issues, and the Special Forces mission. On this episode, Nick and I discuss what led him to Special Forces, his thoughts on West Virginia and veterans' affairs, and events that would forever leave an impact on his life. As always, take a listen. Nick, thank you for joining me. You are actually our first veteran on the program, so I really appreciate you being here. For those of you who don't know, Nick and I go back a little ways, at least 12 years. I think the first memory that I have of meeting you was in 2009, fall. A mutual friend of ours, Forrest, we were living together in Morgantown, and he knew what I was interested in doing after college. And he said, hey, I've got this buddy who just got back from a deployment recently, and he's coming up to Morgantown tonight. For some reason, he'd never mentioned you in the past, really. I don't, <laughs> I don't know why he uh, finally did. So we went down to the Waterfront Hotel in Morgantown, and you and your wife, Amanda, had just driven your Harley up from North Carolina to Morgantown, and you had this big red beard, and you came up and introduced yourself to me and pulled out this presidential coin that was given to you from George Bush at some point. Is that correct? Yeah, it might have been later on. Yeah. Maybe later I don't later. think I let not, off. Not, <laughs> did not lead yeah. off with that. But that is my first recollection of you. That, I mean, that is my first meeting um, with you. And our relationship has grown ever since, our friendship. So I really appreciate you being here today and yeah, uh, sitting down with me. Yeah, my pleasure. So you're originally from West Virginia, but c currently you're living in North Carolina, correct? Yeah, so it's kind of interesting. I actually moved to West Virginia when I was 10. Okay, I didn't know that. Yeah, so I was born in Mississippi, and then my dad's job took us from Mississippi to Louisville, Kentucky. I lived there you know, briefly, and then I went to West Virginia, and uh, that's where I went to middle school, high school, and college. But I consider West Virginia my home because yeah, the course. other places I don't, you know, I don't have any friends there. Uh, West Virginia, I'm still good friends with my middle school and high school buddies. We still talk on a regular basis. So. And I can tell you've got a West Virginia hat on right yeah. now. So it's, I can see where you call home. Yeah, that's that's where my roots are. Now, I've been living here just because, first of all, I was stationed in North Carolina for, you know, my duration of being in the Q Corps and throughout uh, uh, Special Forces. And then I got married and, you know, my wife's a PA, so she had a very good job here. And then I had a job that allowed me to do whatever. And then we 
we kept trying to move. We're either going to move back to West Virginia or at least back into the Appalachian Mountains up towards Boone. But our jobs basically kept us here. Okay. Just my job would keep me me grounded. She'd be like, hey, let's, you know, we can go if you want. And then vice versa. And then uh, about two, I guess two, almost three years ago, my, uh, my parents moved down and so did my sister. Okay. So, you know, now everybody's down here. We're all close. So it's, you know. Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah. It makes sense. It doesn't mean we're not going to move back, though. I, I, would, would Amanda live in West Virginia? I think she would. Okay. You know, um, the intent right now is to get some, you know, a nice plot of land in the mountains and then get a nice little place that we can drive up, you know, five, six hours away, go there, spend a month or two, you know, have that be our kind of getaway. What, uh, what high school did you go to in Buchanan? I went to Buchanan Upshur High School. I wondered if that was uh, a thing only that you one. went through. Okay, <laughs> I didn't know if that was a consolidation later. If that was has been around for a while, it's been a- around for a while. Yeah, it's. Um, I want to say there was there's multiple counties that that went there, and we had a pretty big high school because there was really? just so many very rural co- you know counties yeah. there. That yeah, close. probably some long bus rides to that high school. Yeah, like forty five minutes. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, there's guys that. I mean, you want to talk about poverty. I mean, where these guys lived, they hunted for sustenance. They had to have it. You know, it it wasn't like, I'm going to go out and hunt because it's fun. It was, it's deer day. Tag as many as we're allowed because we've got to eat for the rest of the year. Sure. And that's, that's, you know, some of the guys that I grew up with. Okay. Did you live in town or were you in a rural setting? We lived on the, it was technically in town, but we lived out towards the, the outskirts. So we lived on top of a mountain It overlooked all of Buchanan, which is beautiful. But behind us, it was nothing but woods. Yeah, woods and mountains. Nice. So after high school, you attended West Virginia University, Mm -hmm. where you majored in history. Yeah, so I actually started off majoring in music. And um, when I went there, they didn't have an electric bass major. They had upright bass major. Well, I didn't play symphonic upright bass. I played rock and funk and jazz electric bass. So I tried to make that work for about two years and then did the... uh, the all too common major in psych for three months and then <laughs> change that to basically liberal arts with emphasis in creative writing and history. That's very different than the military. So what made you <laughs> decide to join the military after getting a degree in those majors? Obviously, there's one pinnacle event, but okay. I mean, my, my entire family, literally every almost everybody, every male at least and a few females, we're all in the military. My dad was in, he was a Navy pilot. He was in Vietnam. My grandfather was a Marine pilot in World War II. Um, he served during the Korean uh, conflict in the Air Force. And then he went to the Army in 1963 or 64 and flew Hueys and Chinooks. He actually deployed to uh, Vietnam, the first air cav in 64, got shot down in 65. And then he went back in 68, and that's when my dad was there, too. Really? Yeah. So, um, you know, my brother was in, my sister was in briefly. It goes all the way back, honestly. It goes all the way back to my, you know, one of my great-grandfathers migrated from Norway a few years later, you know, joined the Army to fight World War I. You have a long lineage. Yeah. So that was always there. But myself, I was the youngest of four kids, the musician you know, <laughs> the guy that was not very, uh, you know, I like to do stuff outdoors. I was an right. avid mountain biker, you know, I mean, that's about all I did, but I was a musician. Yeah. So, um, when nine 11 happened, I remember I went into an, an English class and they said, turn in your papers, 
go watch the news. And I was like, oh, well, what's going on? We went up to the mountain layer. Sure enough, saw Twin Towers. It was 9-11. Wow. You were a sophomore, junior? Uh, yeah, I was, I think, my second sophomore year. I did take a, a little break okay. and had to kind of reset because of uh, focus. But um, yeah, so 9-11 happened. I was junior, getting ready to be senior, and was just kind of blown away. You know, I was sitting there listening to the other students that were there, a lot of them from New York, New Jersey, you know, that area. And it was so surreal to watch because, I mean, the only thing that I could remember that was sort of wartime was Desert Storm, which was like, what, 48 hours. Hmm. And then growing up in the 80s, having that sort of Cold War, Red Scare type thing, you know, that was there, but I was too young to really, you know, focus on it. And this is the one thing that as a mature or somewhat mature adult, I was able to really focus on and go, oh, okay, this is bad. And I remember hearing students just sit there and go, whoa, it looks like a movie or all this stuff. And I literally looked at him and was like, you realize that thousands of people just died, right? Oh, and then it was, I don't know if you remember during that time, but I mean, the, the months and months, that's all we saw. And that's all we, you know, and it was basically during that time, I kind of went, you know what, uh, I think I'm going to join the army. And uh, I didn't know if I was going to join the army. I just wanted to join the service at some capacity. Did, so did that surprise? So I know you were in a band and you were in an outdoor kind of friend group. Did that surprise your peers? I kind of kept it to myself for a while. I was sort of doing my own thing, sort of training up, you know, getting mentally prepared, kind of like, okay, look, I'm going from a musician environment, mm -hmm. very liberal, some of them anti-government, just not believing, you know, very peaceful to, okay, well, something's got to happen. So, you know, I started reading a lot and I was, as I said, I, you know, did a lot of history back then. I, I read all sorts of stuff and I was always interested in Vietnam history just because my dad and my grandpa. So... Basically, I kept it kind of a secret for a while, looked into it, stopped partying, kind of stopped the whole band thing. Not because I, I just sort of lost focus on it. I was too focused on, you know, finishing college and doing the next step. So, you know, I talked to, let's see, the Marine recruiter and said, you know, I want to be a pilot like my grandfather and my dad. And I'm 6'1". I'm not exactly a small guy. I've always been around 210, 225 in between there. And uh, he's like, you're a little bit big to be a pilot. Just saying. And Almost everybody comes out of Annapolis. Yeah. <laughs> and I said, okay. And I thought about, you know, going Marine Recon or something like that. I didn't really know what I wanted to be. So I started talking to a Army recruiter, just kind of nonchalantly. And uh, as I was graduating, you know, graduated, went to, applied for OCS. As I was waiting, because there was a big influx of people, as I was waiting, I went out and lived with my sister in Louisville, Kentucky, and then out in New Mexico with my other brother and sister. And had been reading uh, John Plaster's SOG. He has another one called Secret Commandos. Yeah, Behind Enemy Lines. Yeah, Behind Enemy Lines. And then started to, to look into, you know, the Green Berets and everything else and started to see this and kind of went, you know what, this is, this is pretty interesting. This is, I mean, these are, it's the hardest thing to get into, you know, to be a part of. I said, well, I think I want to do that. But one thing that I, I really realized is that if you're in Special Forces on an ODA or an Operation Detachment Alpha, you want to be an NCO because then you get to, to stay on the team. Right. If you're an officer, you basically get your team time, which is year, sometimes less. You know, it's not long. Two years, maybe max. I actually was lucky to have one team leader that, that had close to three years. It's not long. You know, and then after that, you're just a staff guy. 
Right. You know, it's like, I don't want to be a staff guy. I've written enough. I want to continue to do the job. So I called my recruiter and said, Hey, I, th- I think, I think I want to maybe enlist. And he said, well, look, I read your OCS paper, essentially, you know, your, um, what you want to do. And it says you want to go Ranger Regiment, possibly try out for special forces. He goes, we're actually offering this new program called the 18 X-ray program. What's that? I said, there's no guarantees. You go in, you go through infantry basic, you go through airborne, you try out for selection. And then if you make it, then you make it. If you don't, then you just go wherever. And there's no guarantees. It's just try. I said, well, that's what I want to do. You know, I'm, I was already going to be older than the majority of the 18 year olds that were joining, you know, basic training. And I said, yeah, I just want to, I think I want to do that. So I enlisted, which was surprising to my mom and dad. My dad was like, why did you enlist? You've got a degree. Why didn't you? I said, this is what I want to do. And my dad was very skeptical because he's seen Navy SEALs. He's, you know, seen special forces. He's, he's seen all this stuff, you know, back in Vietnam. And he's like, you know, my musician's son that used to have hair past his shoulders is going to be a green beret. I don't, I don't believe it. He believed it. A lot of similarities between us. (laughs) He, 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 he didn't doubt it. He was just like, okay, let's see. You know, he never said, I don't believe you, or I don't think you can't. He just said, okay, let's see. And, uh, you know, I joined the army. Awesome. I appreciate you sharing that with us. Can you talk a little bit about special forces? I know there's a, a common misconception of what special forces is. And uh, I was going to see if you can talk about what it is, how it's different than other special operations entities and kind of what it consists of. First of all, people say special forces very generically, but there's only one special forces and it's army special forces. And we have the patch or tab to prove it. So special forces is army special forces. And then you've got special operations forces, which encompasses everything like uh, SOCOM is special operations command. It commands all of these special operations forces. Now there's multiple different special operations forces. You've got Air Force special operations. Now you've got Marine special operations, Navy SEALs, that's Naval special operations. You have other special operations within the Army, but there's only one special forces, and that is denoted by the Green Beret. People call them special forces or even just green berets. Technically, it's the special forces. Okay. They wear the green beret or they earn the green beret. So that's the big difference. Now, what, what really attracted me to special forces is the fact that their primary mission is foreign internal defense, and it's to go by, with, and through an indigenous force to go in. I mean, if you if you read about Vietnam history or even Afghanistan, when, when the first initial invasion happened within Afghanistan. It was a couple ODAs that went into Afghanistan, met up with a completely foreign stranger force that had this, the same common goal, which was to attack the same enemy. And then special forces would train them, live with them, do everything else. And I thought, you know what, that seems to me more, you know, you're not just kicking in a door and shooting somebody. You're not just an infantry guy that's just, you know, there to take over. You're actually going in and, and, Freeing the oppressed, yeah. more or less, which is the motto of, of special forces. So, so besides foreign internal defense, I guess the other main mission that they're known for would be unconventional warfare. Correct? Yeah, I mean, I, I always go to foreign internal defense just because it's it is unconventional. Unconventional warfare is is a very large umbrella. I mean, you can have you know direct action, everything else. It all fits under that unconventional warfare. But to me, you know, unconventional warfare the 
if there's one peg underneath of it, it's the foreign internal defense, okay. which is the primary mission. Yeah. And now the, the mission's changed. With special forces, you've got a large bag or a large tool bag, let's say that. We're capable of doing everything. We focus on what the mission calls for, where other special operations forces, you know, they have specific mission sets and that's it, like hostage rescue and that's it. You know, they do some other things, obviously, but their primary mission, you know, and training is, is, is around one certain thing. So it, it appealed to me because I knew that there's going to be times that I could go and actually learn about these cultures, not just go over and take over a culture. And to me, that was more intellectual. Mm-hmm. I think, especially reading these books that I did to to understand the the population that you're trying to help out, the best way to do that is to live with them, become friends with them. And I, I think that's a common theme that we're going to hit back on here is, is what you said, Special Forces wears a lot of different types of hats, whether that's from a mission standpoint or even a job standpoint mm-hmm. on a team. You have multiple things that you're responsible for in terms of languages, your job, Physical fitness obviously is the the foundation of that, but there's always a lot of different hats in an SF ODA. Mm-hmm. What was your job on the ODA? So I was an 18 Bravo. That was a special forces weapons sergeant, and it was I knew I wanted to do that just because I like guns. Now, I'm not a big I'm not a hunter. I didn't hunt whenever I was in uh, West Virginia. I enjoy target practice, and then you know I'd go out to Texas where my uh, grandparents lived and. You know, just shoot guns all day at targets. Yeah. It was fun to me. So I knew that I wanted to be a weapons guy. It was interesting because during phase two of the Q course, qualification course, they actually said, hey, look, we, you know, these guys come up here. All of you guys have a higher GT score, which means that we need you guys to be an 18 Delta instead of an 18 Bravo. What's an 18 Delta? 18 Delta is the medic. And they're basically the most highly trained medics that you have in the army. I mean, they, every, they are the standard for all special operations forces. And I, and I I'm like, nah, I want to be a, I want to be a gun guy. <laughs> They're like, okay. I said, you know, I want to get through the course as fast as possible so I can get on a team and deploy. Well, then it happened again. We went into, it was after phase two going into phase three. They said, oh, we need echoes. Echoes are the communications guys. Okay. Well, they called my name and like two other guys. I said, look, you guys have the highest GT scores and you have your, you know, your, uh, you know, secret clearance. So we need you guys to be echoes. I called us over and I was in formation for the echo. And I was just like, damn it. <laughs> <laughs> and then I saw the tack. He kind of went, oh, okay. We need one more. And I think he got the B out of Bravo. And I was like, had my hand up, yelled at him and was running towards him. He was like, Obviously, you want to be a Bravo. Go ahead. So I got back in the Bravo nice. formation. Yeah, that's awesome. So one thing that we haven't hit on yet is there are multiple groups within special forces. Yes. And they're regionally aligned throughout the world. Yes. Can you talk a little bit about how that's delineated? I mean, typically you would have, you know, first, seventh and fifth group are kind of the oldest. Well, actually, 10th is the oldest. But uh, you always hear about first, seventh and, and uh, fifth group because of Vietnam. First group is mainly, uh, you know, Pacific, Southeast Asia. Seventh group is typically, uh, you know, South America. Fifth group is Middle East. Third group, which is where I was at, is supposed to be Africa. And then you've got 10th group, which is Europe and basically any of the mountains. And uh, you get a wish list when you, you get through the Q course or as you're going through. What groups do you want to go to? Well, I wanted to go to first or the 10th, which was in Germany. 
10th group, which is in Colorado, or third group, because I don't know, I thought it'd be cool to go to Africa. And sure enough, they saw a third group and that was all they saw. So, because <laughs> everybody wants I'm to go to first of the 10th or, or Colorado. And, yeah. I mean, they're pretty nice places to live. Right. Yeah. Good deal. Um, and so, when you go to a group like that, you're assigned a language that's for that target region, correct? Mm-hmm. What language did you have to learn? So, <laughs> that's another funny story. So, I actually took French in college and was assigned French. Perfect. It was like, sweet. Maybe I'll be able to test out or maybe I'll do really good and get paid for it. Because if you, if you, if you make a high enough score within language, then you can get extra pay. Well, I'm sitting there and this guy right next to me, who was not one of those called out because they had a high GD, GT score. He said, what, what language do you got? I said, uh, I've got French. He goes, oh, hold on a second. So he raises his hand and says, hey, first sergeant, I've got Arabic and I'm no, I'm no good at, at, uh, at languages. And, and McGarry here, he's got French and, and, he did better on the D-Lab than I did. And I was like, okay, thank you. There's a BF, not boyfriend. <laughs> it's Blue Falcon or some other words for it that are very colorful. <laughs> and everybody was looking at him the same way. And the first sergeant said, McGarry, what'd you get on your D-Lab? And I think I got like a 130 something or other out of, I forget what it was. It was pretty high up there. He goes, all right, well, you've got Arabic now. And I was like, oh, come on. Which... It's not that I really cared. It's just that French was four months and Arabic was six months. And I wanted to get to a team quick. So. Of course, yeah. And not to mention I already knew French. You already knew it. And, you know, it's very common to a lot of the words that we already know instead of learning an entirely new way of reading backwards, new alphabet, everything else. So Nice. <laughs> yeah. It's funny how that works out. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, what other positions besides you mentioned 18 Bravo, 18 Delta, and 18 Echo are on an ODA? So let's just go through them. You've got your 18 Alpha, which is your team leader. You've got your 18 Zulu, which is your team sergeant. Technically, the team sergeant is what runs everybody because he's got the most experience. He's the E8 or the enlisted uh, master sergeant of the team, typically, sometimes an E7, but mostly most of the time an E8. And then you've got an 18 Fox, which is uh, the intelligence guy. And then you've got your 18 Bravo weapons. You've got two of those. Two 18 Charlies, which are your engineers. Two 18 Deltas, which is your medics, and then two 18 Echoes. I think I hit them all there. Yeah. The 180 Alpha. Oh, yeah. The 180 Alpha was getting there, and it was not every team had them, but right. 180 Alpha as well, which is a former enlisted guy that is now warrant officer, and he's technically the executive officer. So he's got more experience, just like the team sergeant. But the team sergeant, that's who runs the whole thing. Yeah. It's, it's his team. The team daddy. Yeah, he's the team daddy. And the 18 Alpha is an officer, so he's only there for one to two years yeah. max. Mainly, he's kind of like summer help. You know, he <laughs> he comes in for a little bit, and then he leaves, and we get another one that's like, hey, we're going to do great things, and it's all the same thing. So <laughs> There's probably some officers listening to this right now who uh, don't appreciate that. <laughs> probably very true, though. Um, no, not all. Really. I've, no, I, was, I was blessed to have actually just two team leaders in the, you know, six-odd years that I was on a team. I mean... They were spectacular. Yeah. Yeah. One was from West Point and the second one graduated from West Virginia University. Really? A year before me. Huh. And he, yeah, he, he's the one that ended up there for three years. And one of them's getting ready to take over the group. And the other one just got done with his battalion commander time. They are down to earth. They're not arrogant. They don't assume anything. They're stellar, stellar performers. Good. That's yeah. what you want in a leader. Yeah, exactly. What was your mindset like when you took off the basic training because this was 2003. Yeah. 
So the invasion of Iraq had just kicked off, probably not, maybe around that same time. Um, so what was your mindset like going into that? Because you had a long process. That's not a short no. process at all to get to a team. It is not a short process. I mean, with the 18 X-ray program, essentially, it depends on how and what you're doing within the course. Um, I went back to back to back. I mean, I had zero breaks and it still took me two years. Oh, or not wow. two years. It was a little bit over a year and a half. But yeah. To say, you know, round of two years. You know, basically I started off in October and then I got to the team in November, two years later. But a lot of that was language and everything else. Yeah, of course. Because yeah. you had to do six months of Arabic? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Did you have to change your language at all to Pashto once you got to? No. Um, so language is, it's ebbed and flowed within the command as far as importance. It is important to have, you should have people that understand it. But at the same time, when you go there, you've got interpreters that sure. speak it fluently. And we have interpreters that are, you know, military occupation and specialties within the military that that's all they do is speak that language. And they're, you know, attached to the team or whatever else. During Afghanistan, we, you know, we'd been there for, let's just say three years, you know, the Taliban was sort of routed, but they were still, it was an insurgency at the time. So there was a well-established interpreter ring and base that was there. Now, the good thing about it, we would hire local guys that were able to speak that went through, you know, whatever uh, company. So they actually lived in the towns that we were staying in. Oh, okay. Grew up there, but were interpreters and they could speak English and they could do everything else. And they're some of the best guys I've ever met. I mean, and it probably made the transition for the team easier. If they're from those towns, they probably can oh, yeah. be a good liaison to the, to the people there to provide a little bit more of a relationship and trust. Absolutely. Um, I mean, my first trip, it was with ODA 372. And um, later on, it went to four digit. I'll get into that later. <laughs> and we were up in the, the northeastern part of Afghanistan. And, uh, you know, we had 200 plus indigenous soldiers that we were in charge of. You know, they did base security. They went on missions with us. They all lived in, in the town, you know, the, the few yeah. little towns that were there. And we knew everybody. We had a very, very good relationship with the entire, with all the townsfolk there. Oh, that's It good. was pretty incredible. I mean, we'd, we'd go to weddings. You know. Really? No way. Oh, yeah. Really? We went to two weddings. We went to um, barbecue. I mean, just all sorts of stuff. And that, that relationship is ob obviously important because of, from a security standpoint, yeah. they're your first warning a lot of, a lot of times, too. Yeah. They can kind of clue you in on what the Taliban, what Al-Qaeda is kind of doing in the region. And, yeah. and, um, and that comes through the interpreter as well. Yeah. I mean, and, and, you know, these guys were fiercely loyal. Yeah, we did pay them because they were, you know, that, that was, there's not a lot of jobs in Afghanistan. Right. You know, especially before we got there. So now all of a sudden, you know, we're paying guys for what a, a month would, they would earn in maybe a year. Yeah. Or they would be bartering or they would do, you know, they were really, really loyal. But we all, I mean, we'd go out and we'd have tea with them. We'd, we'd always, you know, go out and hang out with them. It wasn't just one of those things that you're like, hey, you come here. They all knew us. They knew us, you know, Commander Nick, you know, Commander Robbie, Commander Chris. And, and they knew us. They, we were their buddies. And I mean, I've been in multiple firefights where these guys would get in front of you to try to, and, and they don't have, you know, body, body armor on, right. And they'd get in front of you or try to bring you back. And it's like, I'm not gonna say they looked at you like family, but it was, it was beyond just an employer relationship. It was, it was pretty deep rooted. I mean, we had one interpreter had him back to back deployments 
And then we went down south for my third deployment. So I was up northeast. This time we were down south towards uh, Kandahar. As soon as I got on the ground, I emailed him, said, hey, we're down in Kandahar. What are you doing? He was like, I can't stand it up here. I'm on my way. <laughs> he came all the way down to Kandahar with, with another guy. It was like, I'll work for whatever you can give me. He goes, I know that I'm not employed by you right now because you've got everything else down here, but I want to be with you guys. And we're like, sweet. And they became more friends than anything else. Right. Do you ever keep in touch with any of those guys? I did for a little while. And then they, you know, they sort of drop off. Sure. You know, the one guy was trying to immigrate over here and he was, he was in Germany for a long time. And I forget what happened, but I mean, you know, just like with any friends, you sort of lose touch, lose touch. Yeah. So what, what are you guys doing on a day-to-day basis? I mean, 18 Bravos, you guys are in charge of security-based defense. You guys are also training these indigenous troops. Um, I know some groups, you talked about how you, ha- how you have interpreters, but, you know, 7th Group, who's working in South America, they're doing it all a lot of times by themselves yeah. in Spanish. Um, yeah. So that's a pretty interesting facet of special forces I don't think a lot of people realize either. Yeah, I mean, you 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 learn their cultures, you learn their language. You know, me as an as an Arabic speaker, I was able to pick up on a lot of Pashtun just because similarities, still drastically different words, everything else. But the you know, you could figure it out. So I could I could understand a lot. I could converse generally with them. But I mean, we'd go out. My typical day to day, if we weren't running an operation, was ensure that base security was up, ensure that the training was going on, ensure that people were getting paid, that, you know, there wasn't any squabbles or anything else that was going on. And then also focus on what was going on with the, you know, our mission, you know, making sure all the gun trucks were up, uh, ensuring that the guys had the right, you know, equipment, making sure that they're going out and shooting because it's very easy to go someplace and just be like, okay, yeah, we're here. And then you forget to do all your, your metal tasks, your, you know, your mission is essential tasks like shooting. You know, security is a big thing. If you get shot at, you want to shoot back. You want to be able to hit someone. Yeah. So, you know, I'd be on the range every single day. So, And then compared to maybe like an 18 Delta where they're doing med caps, yeah. where they're out integrating with the local populace, trying to treat any ailments and mm-hmm. also build that relationship, gather intel. Oh, yeah. I think that's a pretty interesting part of that job, too. What we actually did uh, an operation once where we went up to um, basically the mouth of the the Afghanistan panhandle up in the Northeast. Okay. We were right at the mouth of there. And I think the only Americans that were there, maybe it was an American, you know, it was, you know, a guy from a three letter agency. And, uh, you know, they more or less said, talk to this person. So we went up there, two Chinooks landed, you know, had a, a pretty decent sized force with us, you know, a couple trucks, everything else. And, uh, you know, Hey, can we talk to the village elder? And he's like, sure. Now, we were different. We would show up. We didn't look like regular soldiers. We had beards. Yeah. You know, a little bit longer hair. We talked different. We conducted ourselves differently. We did everything differently. He's like, yeah, hey, you guys go ahead and you can you can put yourselves up here, you know, in this this old this school that's not being used right now. You know, we'll just go from there. And the entire, the mission was actually a med cap. That's what we were doing, to go up there and give medical treatment to females. We brought a female doctor with us. Yeah. And then also whatever other medical, uh, you know, needs that people had. So we go up to this place and it's like paradise. I mean, you're deep in the Hindu Kush mountains, you know, you've got 
all sorts of stuff. And then, you know, like day three, they're playing Buzkashi. And Buzkashi is that dead goat game that you saw in right Rambo 3. Right horse, around uh, on horseback with the, yeah. the dead goat. Yeah. The dead goat that you saw in Rambo 3 yeah. is an actual, like, legitimate sport. And we sat there and played that. Wow. And we're, we're, every single night we talked to the village elder or whatever other elders that would come down and be like, hey, you know, do you see any Taliban? We're not looking to go into a firefight. We're just looking to, to see what they need yeah. and to, to gather intel. And they're like, no, there's, there's no Taliban up here because you guys aren't up here. Noted. So for like five, six days, we just sort of enjoyed this beautiful countryside of Afghanistan with these tiny little villages that have never seen Americans and, you know, made friends with them. That's something that I, I don't know if a lot of people who aren't in the military understand is so different than being in the regular army. You don't you don't do that. You don't just grow your beards out, hair hair out, and then go hang out, you know, as a small unit in the town in the middle of nowhere, Afghanistan. Yeah. That's that's really unique. Yeah. And you know, there's a lot of interesting things that came out of there. I mean, in Islam, you're not supposed to drink. Well, one day, the uh, police chief was like, hey, I'm going to come on down, you know, tonight, blah, blah, blah. Well, he comes down, and he's obviously intoxicated. And I'm like, what are you drinking there, buddy? And he was like, oh, I make this out of, you know, pomegranates and everything else. And he made some basically like bathtub pomegranate wine. <laughs> and, you know, and, and you know, buy with and through and to, to earn the respect and the trust of people, you know, he offered it to me. And, of course, I'm like, great. Yeah. <laughs> you know? <laughs> You know, looking at my 18 Delta, like, Cipro later. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, when we sat there and had a couple drinks, and of course, I'm like, I thought uh, in Islam, you're not supposed to drink. He's like, oh, it's dark. Allah cannot see me. I was like, whatever you need, man. <laughs> so, <laughs> That's awesome. How many times did you deploy to Afghanistan? So I did, uh, I did four eight-month deployments. Oh, and wow. There's, with different special operations forces and different groups and everything else, there's different amounts of time that you actually deploy for. So... I did four, eight, I think one was maybe six or seven. It was a little bit shorter, but not much. And you'll hear guys that'll be like, oh, I've been on nine deployments. And then you're like, well, how long were the deployments? Three yeah. months. Okay. So it's actually better to say, how, how, how many, many months? months did you do in combat? Right. It's easier to say it that way. Okay. So, Have you ever wanted to check out a national park from above? Now you can with Wild Blue Adventure Company. Located in Fayetteville, West Virginia, Wild Blue Adventure Company gives you the opportunity to soar above the newest national park in the United States in a fully restored World War II Stearman biplane. This is an experience you'll never forget. To learn more, check out wildblueadventurecompany.com. What were the most difficult times you faced while on those deployments? My second trip was pretty harrowing, which we've, we've uh, discussed before uh, over beers. You know, it was my second trip there. We went back to the same place that we did the, the first trip. Mm -hmm. So when we left the first trip, I mean, I could walk down the middle of the town with a sidearm and have zero issues. I mean, people trusted us. They yeah. knew us. Well, when we came back, the, 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 the team, it was a different group that, that went in there. And then it was also a different uh, regular army unit that came in. So we went from having all of this white space all the way up to uh, what we call Checkpoint Delta, which is essentially a Y in the Kunar River. And the, if you go right, it goes to Pakistan. If you go left, it stays in Afghanistan, but skirts the border. We had all this white space. White space meaning that we're pretty safe. Everybody knew us. Everybody liked us. We weren't going to get ambushed. You know, you still keep security and guard, but you don't. We knew that it was pretty safe. When we get back, we're getting a, a de debriefed by the current regular army guy. 
uh, colonel who knows nothing about unconventional warfare or anything else up there. It's like, well, I'm going to call this yellow space. I'm like, yellow space? What is yellow space? It's like, well, it's not exactly as safe as when you guys left it. I said, well, why not? He goes, well, we stopped grading the roads. We stopped doing all this stuff. We, They basically stopped helping these people out. So therefore, that white space retracted back into some pockets of, of resistance, you know, where the Taliban would hear about whatever. Hey, we can come up here and get intel or whatever else. So, so that's how we started off the whole thing. And then... Um, you know, going into it, we you know, we had some good things that happened. And then January of 08, we got in a huge firefight. Uh, I was in Gowardash Bridge in Nuristan. And, you know, a teammate, very good friend of mine, went through the Q course with him. He was my 18, fellow 18 Bravo. Mm-hmm. Uh, we got to the team the same time. We had condos right next to each other. We were the two single guys on the team. We were best friends. Uh, he ended up, um, you know, giving his life to, to save us. And, uh, if it wouldn't have been for him, a lot of us would have been taken out. So, so that was a big one. We, we can touch on that later. And then right after that, it was another huge firefight, uh, you know, in Shock Valley. And that was, that was a big eye opener because it was two big battles where we were outnumbered 15 to one. And that's when you start to realize, all right, the situation has changed from last time. Last year or the, the, the prior deployment, we got in a couple little skirmishes mainly far ambushes or a couple guys doing pop shots. But this time it was like full on battles and the environment in Afghanistan has started to to swing back. Yeah. And that was just due to your successors that were coming in. Um, I think that's part of it. Yeah. I think it's part of it. I think it was mission creep because with Afghanistan for a while, there was kind of the forgotten war, you know, because everybody was focused on Iraq, Iraq yeah. and that was it. So yeah. all the assets were going to Iraq, everything else. And here we are in Afghanistan and we're like, hey, we need some nine mil. And they're like, oh, sorry, it's all going to Iraq. Mm. And what I mean by mission creep is that we lost sight of what we were supposed to be doing there. And it just, we sort of stagnated. It's like, what are you guys going to do? Okay, presence patrol, gather intel, figure out who to go, you know, HVTs or high value targets or medium value targets and go after those guys to try to take out the, you know, the Taliban and the resistance. Yeah. Well, it's just like playing whack-a-mole. You know, you take out one guy and two or three guys pop up. So it's it's a never ending thing. I mean, right. fighting uh, an insurgency is hard to do if you don't have uh, the right mission focus. And you're I mean, SF is a lot of times about winning hearts and minds. Yeah. And if you're if you're losing assets and you're losing the relationship that you have with the locals, more likely to bring the Taliban out kind of back into those towns. So say, for instance, when we came back my second trip, that. 200 plus man fighting force that we were housing, feeding. I mean, we, we were taking care of these guys living with basically the group that came in afterwards, they were either told or they just did, but they gave over all of those guys to the regular army. Now the regular army, uh, they have their functions, but working with indigenous forces typically is, uh, not their, their biggest strength. So they lost a lot of face with that. Now, when we came back, literally like guys heard about us. Like, hey, I was fired by the regular army. Can you guys hire us? And we're like, we'll figure out what we can do. And trying to get these guys back into, you know, the pocket and make right. sure that they're not disenfranchised. Because that creates a whole different issue at that point, too. Yeah. You know, now you go from having a really well-paying job to being unemployed, which I think current uh, situations in the U.S. can kind of understand that. Sure. You start to do things out of desperation, not out of, you know, what you know is right. Can you talk a little bit about 
Robbie Miller and in those events and what transpired? So Robbie Miller, uh, he's my best friend on the team. We went through the Q course together. Uh, he was quite a bit younger than me, but we lived right next to each other, same condos. I mean, we were on the same, got to the team together, both Bravos, went out, you know, did karaoke together all the time. <laughs> I mean, we, we, we were good buddies. Basically, we, we had this, uh, it was a confirm or deny an HVT or a high value target. Okay. That's one area. And we've been getting Intel reports that this was, you know, possibly happening. This guy plus up to 15 fighters with him. And the intent, I mean, we heard about it when we first got there. We're like, okay, well, it's, you know, if there's a trigger that happens or some sort of intel, then we'll go. So basically what happened, you know, it was December, or sorry, January 24th, 2008, trigger happened. All right, hey, this is part of it. We're going to go up, confirm or deny. If we see them or if we engage, then we'll we'll drop and then we'll go do battle damage assessment and see if we got the guy or not. That was the intent. So we finally, you know, start off the 24th we've been prepping the whole day go up get some extra intel do everything else ensure that we've got a quick reaction force by the regular army all this other stuff and we go up this valley i mean literally it's a, a cliff on your left side as you're going north a river on your right side so it's no a choke point it is choke point i mean if you read the book uh the bear went over the mountain that's it, it's Nuristan. this is where a lot of Russian forces were just annihilated because they used the, the terrain to their advantage. Yeah. You know, high peaks, steep cliffs, everything else. We'd been there multiple times. We didn't care. Uh, you know, we were on point. We understood what was going on. Came across a couple. Basically, there were some rocks, you know, boulders in the road, got rid of those. So they knew that we were coming, sort of. But at the same time, we, we were expecting, you know, 15 plus fighters. At the same time, some Afghan road workers were surveying the road up in that area, four of them, and four of those guys had gotten uh, captured, but we weren't sure where. So here we've got, uh, you know, Afghan nationals that are being held hostage in the region, don't know where, hear about this HVT that's coming from Pakistan because it's right, you know, the, the valley basically goes directly into uh, to Pakistan. We're like, all right, well, let's go up there and check it out. We get up there, we get established, all right, this is target compound, all right? We start getting shot at. So we immediately engage. We engage for a while, drop three 500 pounders, got ISR or, you know, predator basically looking at, don't see anything. Seems like everybody's gone. You know, you guys took out probably 20 guys. All right. Sounds good. Let's go do BDA. See if we can identify this guy, see if we can get anything else. So from there, from our overwatch position with, with our trucks, we had to walk. I uh, forget. It's probably 500 meters to the bridge, cross the bridge, and then traverse back. So it was a decent hike. And, you know, it's pitch black. We've all got suppressors on our, our M4s. Robbie's carrying a, a saw, which is a squad automatic weapon. It doesn't have a suppressor. We're all wearing gray. We're in night vision, everything else. You know, we're patrolling. We're going through there. And all of a sudden, you know, we hear all Akbar. This guy with a PKM starts to, to open up. And then all hell breaks loose. Well, let me re regress here real quick. Right before Allah Akbar, the uh, Predator just, it, it's basically a big IR beam. It's like a spotlight right next to our position. Oh. It was just like, bloop. And when he did that, these guys can't see it. You know, the Af or the, the Taliban can't see it because they don't have night vision. Right. But myself and two of my teammates, we look over and there's like five guys just waiting to ambush us, but they don't even see us. And we're like, 
oh. And then all of a sudden, all Akbar happens. Uh, Robbie, being unsuppressed, starts charging towards that that PKM area. Okay. And starts taking guys out. At the same time, I'm engaged immediately with, you know, four or five guys 10 feet away from me. Yeah. Near ambush. Very near ambush. But at the same time, they can't see us because here I am shooting them, <laughs> but I've got a suppressor on. They don't see me. They only see Robbie. Yeah. They see bright flashes. You know, they hear everything with suppressor. You don't see the flash. You don't hear it. You can hear it, but it's it's muffled. You don't know where it's coming from. Well, as all this is happening, we start to look around and they had uh, hardened, you know, overhead shelter in these fighting positions. Mm. So the ISR could not see these fighting positions, could just look like rocks, but it was actually dug out and they had fighting positions with overhead cover. Okay. So if ISR can't see them, if they get bombed, they've got some shelter and everything else. Yeah. So all of a sudden I'm just faced, myself and two other guys are faced with all sorts of fighting positions and it just lights up. It's like uh, if all the lights go out in a football stadium and you know, everybody's taking pictures. That's what it looks like. It just flashes everywhere. And the, the terrain is straight up. You're basically in a, in a sense in a bowl, but it was very, very small, compact area. With uh, them not being able to see you, did they start focusing fires on Robbie at that point? They all focused fires on Robbie because he was the, he was the one making all the noise. Yeah. Because you know, he was just tearing it up with the, the saw. So, so you have 200 more fighters so, so we didn't we didn't know at you the time yeah. at the time we thought we were going up against 15 20 yeah well all of a sudden i mean it's just going and going and going and then we start you know i hear one guy one of my teammates i'm hit i'm hit and you know i start hey fall back now fall back basically to get out of this area that we're at so we can reestablish a base of fire and then i hear somebody else say i'm hit i'm hit well my teammate that was right next to me big huge guy I mean, he's just like six foot four, you know, 250 pounds. Dude was, you know, he's like, I'm going to get him. So, you know, him and this giant meaty hand on me, he's like, I'm going to get him. I'm like, I got you covered. So I push further into the, the, the kill zone or the, the danger area and him and he was our air force CCT. I'm not going to mention any names. You know, he, he pushes up or both of them go up and try to get this other teammate. I didn't know who it was. I didn't know who was hit. All I heard is two guys were hit. Yeah. So we're just shooting, firing, just laying scunning. This goes on for a minute. I'm like, you know, pull back, fall back right now. And then all of a sudden, not even 10, I mean, it was like maybe 15 meters in front of me, the whole mountainside lights up. Mm. And right after that, I hear this, which is the sound of an A or an A, what am I, A10, right? Oh, an A-10? Yeah. 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 Danger close. Someone at CCT had called in. Yeah, CCT had called in an A-10, which, you know, this giant 30 millimeter Gatling gun. Well, I didn't know if you saw me because I was so close. And I'm, by that time, I went from a knee, you know, in the prone position. And I look next to me and it's one of those, those Afghans that was a friend that was like, hey, I got laid off, you know, and we're, we're paying this guy because he was just a spectacular guy. I mean, we gave him a sniper rifle. He was such a good shot. Wow. Yeah, spectacular you guy. You don't hear about that often. Yeah. You know, one of ours too. Yeah. yeah. He was he was good. And he's he's right next to me and I I grab him. I'm like, turn my you know, F and strobe on. And the guy didn't speak any English. Mm. <laughs> but he understood what I was saying. So he turns my strobe on. Three more strafing runs come right in that same area because they had seen so much. And uh, you know, I told told him to get back. 
he finally gets back. I cover him. And then I had to low crawl backwards, which is something and you learn in basic training, but you're like, who's going to low crawl backwards? Nobody's ever going to low crawl backwards. Oh, I, I remember popping up when I finally got some cover and like dirt came out of my, my, uh, helmet. Yeah. So I've, you know, quickly reassessed. I mean, I used to carry eight magazines plus one in my M4 and I had gone through seven of those. Wow. Just while engaged that quickly. And it, it wasn't, I wasn't just firing. I mean, I was engaging and it was pretty intense. And they still can't really see you at this They point. couldn't see me. I mean, there's, so <laughs> it's not supposed to be gory or anything like that, but, um, as I'm covering my buddies trying to, to help out, you know, my, my other teammate who's hit, and there's this tree that's maybe 10 feet in front of me. And this guy pops out, you know, he, he starts to fire towards my buddies that are, that are running over. So I immediately shoot him. And then I start to engage these, these hardened structures. And then he pops out on the other side. And I was like, so, I, you know, a couple more. Well, then it happened again on the other side. And then it finally happened again. And by this time, I'm like, I uh, hit my my uh my sight yeah. what's going on i actually took the time to put it on ir my eotag on ir okay well placed shots and, and saw him drop it's like all right finally that's done yeah i've missed this guy four times what the hell well i'll get back to that so remember the tree and the four guys yeah or the, the one guy that kept going there. so get back i realized that my team leader's uh injured you know he's he's shot through the shoulder we're still super close. I mean, it's like basically right around a little boulder from the kill zone. I get over there. He's getting a um, chest tube or a needle D Yeah, needle needle. And uh, I'm like, Hey, I'm going to carry him down there. We've got cover. You, you guys cover me. So I pick up my team leader. Well, first of all, I grabbed all of his ammo that he wasn't using, picked up my team leader, dragged him down there and then covered for the guys coming back. So we reestablished our casualty collection point there. Well, pretty soon we, we found out that the Afghans, that we had a, a couple Afghans that were with us. One of them shot himself in the foot because he was so afraid. The other ones just dropped their weapons and literally ran. So it was, it went from like eight of us plus, you know, five Afghans to no Afghans and two of us got hit. So now we're down to six guys. Oh, wow. Yeah. You know, we're, we're shooting or doing everything else. And, uh, I guess it was actually seven of us called in the medevac medevac came in pretty bad. We dropped multiple other danger close bombs and then we had to go up and we had to find Robbie. Yeah. We found out that Robbie actually got killed. Okay. And again, Robbie is a good friend of mine. So during this time we're calling for our quick reaction force, which is the, uh, supposed to be the regular army. Well, they decided that it was too hot for them. They decided not to come up. Mm -hmm. So, uh, another unnamed group was there, not group, but, uh, team was there and they came up and they actually helped us out so we get up and we're like all right this is what we're going to do brief them we go up we recover robbie and i was talking to my uh my 180 alpha i said hey hold on a second i gotta go check something out so i went back to that tree right where i was we we're still getting you know still taking fire not nearly as heavy but still taking fire and it wasn't one guy that popped out it was actually four guys so there was two guys on either side of the tree okay. i was like okay so you hit all four of them yeah i was okay. i was sort of relieved yeah. like okay i know what i'm hitting um you know i know what i'm aiming at i'm hitting so so either way we 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 come back i look up i see some guys running and they pop up with the rpgs this rpg landed not even a meter not even three feet from me i mean it's right next to me and i see it screaming towards me it blows up i shield my buddy and then start just 
pushing people off the road. And I didn't get any shrapnel. I got a tiny little nick on my, my uh, cheek. But guys in front of me got peppered like crazy. It, it made no sense. Yeah, it doesn't point, make any sense. To the point where my, my, uh, my teammate was like, I don't know how you're not dead. I mean, it landed right next to you. Yeah. He got shrapnel on his nose, but would have gotten, uh, it was just, it didn't make any sense. So we were engaged again. We basically got in another firefight uh, when we were there. Uh, finally called it another medevac, got all the rest of the, the, the guys out and came out of there. So it was about a 12-hour, 12, 12 to 14-hour you know, full-on engagement. 12 hours? Yeah, full-on engagement. I mean, you're, you know, from dismounted to 10 feet away from somebody. How did you continue to get resupply of ammo? How much ammo were you carrying at that point? At first, we went through a lot. Yeah. And then we, you, you start to really pick your your your, uh, your targets. Okay. One of my big mottos. So in, in the military, you know, you've got suppressive fire, which is just a massive volley and volume of, of fire in the general direction. I always trained all of my guys to include the, the Afghans at the best suppressive fire is accurate fire. So instead of just unloading, understand where you're going to shoot, see if you're going to hit that area and then focus on that point, not just all over the place. So, you know, we, we cross loaded, you know, the guys that were injured, we take their stuff, get them on the bird, everything else kind of go around. So, um, yeah, by the time we got back, that's when, you know, it, everything was fine. Got all the way back. That's when it was like, okay, Robbie's dead. Our team leader is nearly dead. He had to have a chest tube, like full-blown chest tube, not just the uh, the needle. And he was like, they weren't sure if he was going to make it. He was circling the drain. How close were surgical assets to you guys? The closest, I mean, we had a, a med shed and uh, the regular army had a pretty decent, you know, they had the surgeon there. They did have a surgeon. Yeah. So, you know, we they went directly to, to back to the base and then from there to JBAD, okay. which is a major hub. JBAT to uh, Kabul. And uh, that was the, you know, Robert Miller. That's where he ended up getting the Medal of Honor. Right. During that. It and was, he was the first Special Forces yep. since Vietnam to receive the Medal of Honor? Yeah. I mean, I guess you could say Shugart and Gordon. Okay. Because, you know, they were in uh, Somalia and they were Special Forces guys. They were just in a different unit. Right. But for actual Special Forces regiment, he was the first guy. And, uh, you don't really know what you're going through until afterwards, you know, and we just like, okay, well, you know, shit happens. Let's just move on. And then it was four months later, we're in Shock Valley, which produced, not produced, but two other guys were awarded medals of honor. And it was myself, my team sergeant and our Air Force CCT. So we were in both of those battles directly, not just, you know, yeah. on the sidelines. So it was 2008 was pretty, uh, pretty intense, to say the least. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, no problem. So. For the Medal of Honor ceremony, that was held at the White House, and your whole ODA went up there um, for that presentation? Yeah, yeah. So um, I was actually getting ready to transition out of the military. I was looking at some other things outside of uh, civilian world and everything else. And um, I remember sitting, I think I was actually sitting in a Hooters with my brother and my two very young nephews that wanted to go to Hooters. Okay. And uh, I got the call from my team leader in Afghanistan. He's like, hey official Robbie's getting the Medal of Honor so That's right. you know we we went up and and got to to be a part of that I was luckily since I was such good friends with Robbie I was the escort to uh, the Miller family okay and uh, you know it's it's it a pretty amazing special time they you know for the the nation to honor the sacrifice like that yeah so yeah and I know uh, that inspired he was 
he was uh, the second of uh, eight children. Is that correct? I think seven. Seven? Seven or eight. I and I know that inspired at least one of his younger siblings to join Special Forces later. Yeah, he did. He was actually planning on joining, I uh, thought he was planning on joining the, the Navy to try to go Navy SEAL just to do something different than his brother. Right. He said, no, nah, I'm going to go SF. Okay. And, uh, yeah, he, he was actually in basic training during that. So uh, maybe he was outside of basic training or something, I forget. But I mean, think about that brand new private, brand new to the military. And then all of a sudden your brother is getting the Medal of Honor and you're, you know, having a formal dinner with the chief of staff of the, the army and you're right. meeting, you know, joint chief of staffs and the president. And what a way to start off your military career. Yeah, I can't even imagine. Wow. How did guys on your team recover after that in terms of mindset? I mean, there's different ways to look at it. It's a tragedy. It always is. It, it hurts. It always will. But at the same time, we were all there doing a, a mission and doing that job. Sure. You know? So some of us were able to, uh, I wouldn't say move on because it's, you know, you think about it every day, but at the same time, you understand, look, this happened. There's nothing that I can do about it. To quote one of my sergeant majors, uh, who's retired now, and I think trying to, to help out a lot of uh, veterans, uh, Sergeant Major Rob Dwayne. He said, look, I've got one thing for you. Look back, but don't stare, which makes a lot of sense. Because if you stare, you're just going to be enthralled with it, everything else. If you look back, remember the good times, remember the life, don't remember the tragedy, you know, so. That's good. I haven't heard that before. I like that. So what made you decide to get out of the Army? So at that time, again, I think I mentioned it before, the mission creep started to happen. Mm -hmm. And I had already been through sniper school, was in Sephardic, which is an advanced, you know, assaulting school. Got the two schools that I really wanted and was looking at, at re-enlisting and was like, look, you know, I made E7 and like, you know, made the list in like six and a half years. That's fast. It was very fast. Very fast. You know, but what, what do I want to do? And I, I, I said, look, I talked to my sergeant major. Uh, he's a battalion sergeant major at the time. And he said, look, Army needs you, but you don't need the Army. You're going to do just fine. He's like, you know, we're going to be coming back here over and over and over again. And I didn't want to leave the team. But at the same time, during this, I would say three quarters of the team was gone. So, uh, you know, they're all leaving to do different things because they'd been on the team for so long. And, uh, you know, I, I kind of went, I'm going to go ahead and get out. I think uh, I'm going to try a couple other routes, see what happens. And, I, you know, I didn't, it was weird. I didn't want to leave the team. But I definitely, at that point, didn't want to stay in the Army. It was, it was an odd thing. Uh, yeah. I look at it very much like a fraternity. A lot of guys want to be out of college, but want to stay in the fraternity. Right. And with Special Forces, that's the ultimate you know, fraternity. You know, being in combat, being that close quarters with guys and sharing that mindset. Yeah. Know, it's, uh, it's the hardest fraternity to probably get into and say, one of them. It's very unique. You have... 12, sometimes less guys in a team room. It's a brotherhood. You know, you might not always get along, I would imagine, but... Uh, it, it, it's almost like a family. Yeah. Because you have the same dynamics as you would with a family. You know, you you get irritated and annoyed by some people and some people you're best friends with, and it just goes around. You know, it's... It, yeah. Do you ever regret getting out? Again, I miss the team, but I, I didn't... I don't necessarily miss the Army. But I love the army. That's the thing. It's a, it's a, I don't regret it. I kind of look like, look, I did it. I got out. I can't just go back. I mean, I probably could, but they don't want <laughs> somebody old like me. But you definitely had enough experience in seven years, 
in the army yeah, for a little, career yeah. that than most people would get in a 30-year career. I mean, it was what, 34, 36 months in combat. Right, so yeah. over three years of all, your life in combat. Yeah. That's that's wild. You know, it was it was an intense time. You know, But again, there's guys that, like my 180 Alpha, the guy has like 11 or 13, I forget, uh, like eight-month deployments. Wow. You know, the guy's like, he went from Ranger Regiment to Special Forces and just, yeah. I mean, constant. I, I can only imagine, you know, the effect that has on a family, too. That's rough. Yeah, I mean, I was single back then. My last deployment, I was married, but we didn't have who didn't have kids. Right. I, to be quite honest, I think some of the bravest men in the world are these operators that have kids at home that are going over and doing something that could very well get them killed. Yeah, and to have that fortitude, because I look at my daughters now, like there's no way I can leave you. I mean, I do it every so often with work, but it's a different mindset. Yeah, you know, to hey, you're going to combat. That's for eight months. Yeah, that's a. Uh, That's a lot of bravery. Operation Welcome Home, based out of Morgantown, West Virginia, is a nonprofit initiative that provides veterans of the armed forces a physical venue for rehabilitation services and support. Since 2010, Operation Welcome Home has worked to provide veterans with medical assistance, psychological counseling resources, and rehabilitation resources. They have also worked to support transitional employment and assist local colleges with support programs. If you're interested in learning more about Operation Welcome Home's work, or you want to help them continue their mission, check them out at welcomehomewv.com. Has your perception changed on Special Forces at all, or are you still passionate about the mission? I'm very passionate about Special Forces. Again, it it comes down to, um, it's that that fraternity. That's the big thing. I think that uh, it's it's needed. And multiple times this happens. We go through this evolution where, you know, here we are, and then somebody else takes a mission and blah, 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 and then something else happens. And what do they got to do? Send an SF because we're the guys that can go in, buy with and through, win hearts and minds, and figure out how to establish uh, some sort of counterinsurgency. And it's happening right now in, in different parts of the world. So, what was the transition back to civilian life like for you? No, I got very lucky. Okay. So, I literally went from having about six months in the military. And I was talking to a buddy of mine at the bar and said, hey, what are you doing? He goes, ah, you know, do this, but you got to be retired or a college degree. I said, well, I got a college degree. He goes, cool. Stop by tomorrow. You're hired. Okay. I'm still in the army. He goes, don't worry about it. You know, just, just let us know and we'll, we'll go from there. Well, he put me on a team with um, a friend of mine who he was leaving the team to take over a team sergeant position as I was coming on. He'd been on 372 for 10 years. Yeah. So now all of a sudden I'm, I'm working with third group guys and we're going and we're training regular army guys and reservists and everything else on base security and what you should be doing to, okay. to ensure security and how to use these um, new uh, electronic security measures and towers and FLIR balls and what you should be, how to utilize this stuff. So we're, we're giving our knowledge to these guys and they're going over and using it. And it was it was great because we'd we'd go over we'd we'd travel, you know, work remotely in different bases or whatever else as you know, four or five man team. We're all third group guys. We all combat vets. We're all part of the fraternity, and and we worked very well together, just like an ODA. And that was for four years. And then from there, I went on. And I was um, the director of sales and marketing for a rifle company. And so pre- let's yeah. talk about that real yeah. quick. You have a couple interesting stories that come from that because 
I know you, you sold over a hundred thousand dollar rifle to a sultan in the <laughs> Middle East. Yes, this guy randomly calls me up. He's like, "Oh, you know, hey, this one, I, you know, I'm a sultan over here in uh, uh, where was he? Uh, I forget. It was Middle East or Southeast Asia." Okay, okay. I'm like, okay. And he was just back and forth, up and down, all over the place. And then I get this this email from him, from his little aide. You know, his royal highness requests this. <laughs> Talk to me about everything. And then this guy would call me up every now and then. Hey, uh, do you still have that titanium rifle? I'm like, yeah. He was like, I want to buy it. I'm like, all right, $100,000. Okay. <laughs> what? So I, after that, I called my boss, the CEO, and was like, hey, is it cool if I sell the titanium rifle? She's like, yeah. We probably want some a decent amount. I said, "Well, I just sold it for a hundred thousand. Is that cool?" She's like, "Yeah." <laughs> <laughs> you know, and it was a showpiece. It was the only titanium uh, AR-10 that had been made at that point. So. Okay. And then he just continued to buy rifles and wanted to be outfitted for this and this and you know a security outfit and everything else. So yeah. Did you take it to him or did he come pick it up? Or? No, we just shipped it to just him. Just shipped it across. Yeah, but I mean, we had multiple things. I, like I had to get some ammunition from one place, and it was. Yeah. It's interesting. And then in addition to that, I don't remember where this was. You can fill in the gaps on this, but you basically befriended Maynard Keenan, oh. the lead singer of Tool, so, um, and taught him how to shoot long range or helped him shoot long range. So that story came from a, a mutual friend introduced me to this, this guy. And he said, I said, would you mind if I came out? I want to give Maynard a gift because... We used to listen to Tool all the time, and yeah. Robbie and I were huge fans of Tool, the music. You know, we're not fanatics or fanboys or anything like that, but either way, so I wanted to give him something that, like, here's a little story about Robbie I want you to, to know about it. So I made this, this, had this rifle made for him, and uh, the intent was just for me to go out there, give him this gift, and that was it. You know, just say, hey, thank you for the music. Appreciate it. Robbie was a big fan. Just want you to know his name. Well, we go out there and and uh, he's learning long range uh, shooting from a like world champion 50 cal guy. OK. And of course, I'm a sniper as well. And we're both giving him pointers and everything. He's, you know, Maynard's a very intellectual person and wants to know a lot about everything. Yeah. He's, he's not just he, he's, he's not your typical run of the mill person, period, let yeah. alone artist. You know, he's interested. So we, we did that. And then. Um, it turned out that instead of just him learning about long range, he wanted to know more about Robbie. Then they did a, uh, an article about, they called it the metal of honor. So had Maynard with the rifle on the cover, uh, ballistic, I think, I guess what it was. Okay. Or is either ballistic or recoil. And, um, yeah. And from then on, you know, we, we're not like best friends or anything, but you know, we yeah, sure. keep in touch when he comes and play shows, he'll, he'll get me in like, couple years ago when he was uh touring he got they got us in like the prime spot fantastic seats so that's really cool now i was going to ask you earlier and while we're on the subject is there a a foundation people can check out for robbie do they have a foundation set up i think there's a a couple different foundations i don't think there's one specifically for robbie okay i think it was ever really established um you know the greenberry foundation they they do a lot and they they helped robbie's parents out a lot okay and is that something people can donate straight to? Absolutely. 501, you know, C3, um, the Green Beret Foundation. There's there's a couple special forces foundations that you can you can donate to. And they it's not like the typical 501C3s that, you know, technically they're nonprofits, but their guys are making a bunch of money. These right. guys, they they help out 
they really help out the families, especially of, of uh, fallen warriors. Okay. Yeah, so uh, yeah, if if anyone's interested, please check those out. That would be that would be great. So what are you what are you doing these days? Well, now I'm the executive vice president for uh, True Velocity Ammunition, which is a basically it's a it's a, a new it's a technology company that has created a new way to make ammunition. And what the ammunition is is a composite, so it's thirty percent lighter. We're not constrained to what brass has been for 180 plus years. And uh, the manufacturing is 85% smaller and much more environmentally friendly. For really? Small. So you got to think with brass, we've been using the same method with brass for 180 years and nothing's changed. We've changed the projectiles, the powders, the primers, the, the guns, the cartridge, the brass has actually not changed. You can't, I mean, you're, there's only so much you can do with it. So with this company, I was actually working in SF Command at the time and saw this company and was like, this is drastically different. You know, in a 2,500 square foot area, you can produce 30 million rounds and all you need is water and electricity and oh, wow. raw materials. So you don't have to worry about the strip mining, the melting and smelting of different metals together and the leach pits and all this other stuff. It's just, you know, it's a composite. It's 100% recyclable. Uh, you don't get any any heavy metal off gassing. I mean, it's pretty incredible. And not to mention, everything is digitally processed to the point where every single round, 100%, has to, to reach our parameters. And if it doesn't, it gets kicked. So in, instead of like brass, where they do a lot, and they'll do like, you know, one out of 50 or one out of 100 or one out of 25, depending on what they're doing, ours is 100%. I wonder why it's taken so long to to come up with something different than the regular brass that's been used for hundreds of years? Honestly, I think it's just, it was technology and the, the drive to do that. You know, nobody ever said, let's make the case. I bet you the case would, would make this a lot better. I mean, you know, make the overall shooting better. I mean, for instance, our stock ammunition that comes off is typically your standard deviation, which is different in feet per second per round, is typically like three to eight feet per second. Okay. Where brass is like, Let's just say, you know, unless you're hand loading and it was super precision, but you're looking at 15 to 55, depending, feet per second difference. Okay. So wow. if everything's always going the same speed in the same place, yeah. you're going to be more accurate. I need to check that out. Yeah. That's, that's, I didn't realize all of that. That's cool. Yeah. I'm going to shift gears a little bit. I want to talk about West Virginia again. So I feel like West Virginia, at least in the community, has, has a reputation of producing good soldiers. What do you think it is about the state that kind of lends to that credence? I would say it's the state itself and just the environment. Okay. You grow up in an area that is mountainous. You know, there's snakes, there's deer, there's, you know, a lot of these guys are, are um, you know, hunters. You're just sort of born outside and to understand that. And one of the things that I really like about West Virginia, at least in the rural area where I lived, you know, it didn't matter what color, creed, anything else. It mattered what the substance of the person was. If you were a good person, then you were accepted. Yeah. And that was always my interpretation. And when I first moved there, they're like, oh, city boy. And then, you know, I'm constantly outside doing stuff and, you know, I'm still good friends with all those guys. Yeah. So. Well, where did you move from again? Basically Louisville. Louisville. Kentucky. Okay. So, yeah. I mean, it wasn't exactly a big city. Yeah, but that, <laughs> but that's, it was to people in Buchanan. Yeah. I mean, we didn't have a Walmart. I mean, it was like a big deal when we got a Sheets, which is a big gas station. Yeah. <laughs> it was like, hey, we can go hang out at the Sheets. You know? <laughs> it was, 
you know, very, very small town. Um, Should I still search for sheets anytime I'm driving yeah. somewhere? Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's what I seek out as a sheet. Yeah. It's funny. I don't know how much you know about veterans issues in West Virginia since you've been in North Carolina for a while, but what do you think West Virginia needs to do in order to attract veterans to the state? I was kind of showing you a little bit ago, West Virginia is near the bottom in terms of different West, different veteran statistics. Mm -hmm. What does West Virginia need to do both as a, as a veterans community and as a uh, I don't know, government infrastructure in order to support veterans better? I think the veterans community is going to really be more advantageous. I think what, what West Virginia, personally, what I think they need to do is, is they need to start to expand outside of the, you know, the, the old way of looking at it, which is coal mining and logging, and invite some of this other industry that needs to be out there. I mean, if it would have been me, I would have been lobbying pretty hard for the Guinness factory instead of Baltimore to be in West Virginia. And the reason why is because, you know, the water, you know, you're getting similar minerals, everything else. I mean, it's, it's, it's hard to say because people are attracted to go there for, for multiple different reasons. I think that, I think it's starting to change. It's, it's, it's getting out of that, you know, industrial revolution sort of way that it used to be to becoming, you know, you know what, it's actually pretty nice here. It's, you know, you can go out, it's peaceful. Everybody's friendly. And you were talking about the water quality. I think that's one of the reasons, uh, besides the town being really cool, um, Sierra Nevada or New Belgium, yeah. maybe both, moved towards Asheville was the water quality. And I think you're absolutely right. You know, Guinness, West Virginia could provide the same type of atmosphere, I guess, in a lot of ways that an Asheville could and, yeah. and in terms of production. So that's that's pretty, I never, I didn't know they moved to Baltimore actually, or have a location in I think, Baltimore. Yeah, as far as I remember, yeah. Um, I mean, if you think about Ireland and even all the way up into, you know, Norway, Pangea area that, you know, the Appalachians, that was big, one big area. So right. It's all the same minerals. They're basically saying that, you know, the same types of mountains that are in Appalachia are the same that are in Ireland and, you know, these different places. I didn't know that. Yeah. It's uh I forget, I forget who told me that, but it was pretty amazing. I think it was a girl that I was dating that was a geologist. Really? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Do you see West Virginia as being a state that could attract veterans after military service? I think so. You know, there's, there's two types of military veterans in my experience that get out. There's the ones that, that get out and really can't identify what they can do because it's, there's just so much going on in the military that you don't have a, a specific focus. You know, you're not a marketer. You're not a sales guy. You're not an engineer. You know, what did you do in special forces? I can run, I can train a bunch of guys to go to combat. It's identifying what those are. So either way, let me go back to digress a little bit. You've got the guys that get out that take that motivation and that initiative that they learn to have and to, to really hold on to and to strive for within the military. And they get out and they do amazing things. I mean, look at the Go Ruck guy. Yeah. You know, I think I went through part of uh, the Q course with that guy. Okay. You know, he's, they get out and they're motivated. They know what they want to do. They figure it out and they go for it. And then you get the other guys that, unfortunately, instead of looking back and not staring, they stare and they, they go down the, the other road. And that, that's, that's pretty common with, with throughout the entire United States and even, you know, globally. But um, I think that the healing power to me of the mountains, I mean, when I'm feeling down or just drawn out and tired, I go to the mountains and all of a sudden I'm, I'm like rejuvenated. Yeah. I feel better. 
I think there's a lot that could be done in West Virginia to help out the, the veterans. And that also that these veterans, if they have an idea, they could go out and they could figure out ways to to make that industry or idea thrive and, and start to go. Yeah. Probably a lot of mumbling and rambling. No, I, I like it. I like it. How do you describe West Virginia to someone who hasn't been there before? I've always said that West Virginia is the best kept secret in America. And the reason why is because the majority of the states around there are pretty industrialized. You know, you've got Virginia, you've got Pennsylvania, Maryland, all of these places sort of mold into the same sort of region. And then you've got West Virginia, which, you know, they seceded from the South because they didn't agree with things. You know, they 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 have their own values. They're not a bunch of rednecks. They're not a bunch of they're just good people that just want to live in, you know, in a beautiful part of the area. Yeah. And unfortunately, I think there's there's that there's that stereotype that people are like, oh, West Virginia. I'm like, have you ever been there? Well, no. Okay, then you don't have anything to say. Right. Best kept secret. And if you're going to look at it that way, just stay out. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. All right. Yeah. Um, I, I was going to mention this earlier, and I forgot all about it. I just learned about this guy last night. Uh, I was talking to a friend who lives back in West Virginia and uh, is involved in the National Guard there. And we were talking about what it is about West Virginia that produces such good soldiers and not just special forces, but military wide. Um, and Woody Williams comes to mind and Jimmy Stewart, who uh, posthumously received the Medal of Honor from Mason County and Chuck Yeager. You know, those are the notable names. Well, who was the um, it was in Band of Brothers? Oh, he was the first sergeant. First sergeant. Yeah. Played by Donnie Wahlberg. Yeah. I can't think of. I think, can't think of the gentleman's name right off, but... Uh, it wasn't Linwood, but it was something like that. Yeah, I'd have to look it up. But yeah, you're absolutely right. You know, that guy's... A uh, legend. Yeah, I actually, one time when I was in Special Forces and the um, I was active duty, they just opened up a Walmart in, in Buchanan. I see this guy and all he, he has on is, he's got a, a Ranger Regiment crest. Yeah. The old, old one. Okay. In World War II. And I went up and said, you know, I didn't have any identifiers on me. I said, hey, sir, you know... Where were you? He goes, well, I was in Ranger Regiment. I went up Point Duhawk. I was like the third or fourth wave that came in. Lipton. Lipton. That's it. First Sergeant Lipton. Yeah. First Sergeant Lipton. So anyway, this guy said, well, I was in you know, Point Duhawk at the beginning. It's third or fourth wave. And I was there until the end. And I'm sitting there looking at this guy like, oh, my gosh. You know, <laughs> he had like four or five Purple Hearts. You know, I mean, and he goes, what do you do? And I said, well, I'm in third Special Forces group. He goes, oh, holy crap and i said no if it wouldn't have been for you guys <laughs> right <laughs> we wouldn't be anywhere and right you know everybody's just from what i've seen mo most people are just humble there they yeah you know they, that's really cool life. yeah i uh was learning about this guy last night it's just funny how it works out his name was richard smoot he just passed away a couple of years ago but he was in vietnam in the 60s uh got out after that and then 9-11 happened. So he decided while he was in his 40s to re-enlist. He was part of 219 uh, mm -hmm. Special Forces Group and based out of West Virginia. And he was one of the original horse soldiers. Mm -hmm. uh, they were attached to 5th Group 219. And uh, I found pictures on the internet of him last night. But he, he went through combat, the combat divers course mm -hmm. as a 49-year-old. That's was easy. No, no. <laughs> was running circles around 22-year-old Special Forces kids. Yeah. And then he went to Iraq in 2005, 2006. So he, his career spanned 
four different decades. Yeah. It's just amazing to me. You know, and I didn't even know anything about them. It, something else that, that kind of brought me to this, especially to start opening, when 9-11 first happened, and it was maybe six or eight months after that, I used to work at uh, a bike shop. Like bicycle? Yeah, bicycle. Okay. And it was there was a cafe there, you know, bicycle shop. And uh, there was a guy that worked there. His name was Gene Vance. Gene Vance, he wasn't really my boss, but I mean, he was like, I think he ran the books or something like that. And he was a finance guy or accountant. Well, I didn't even know that he was either, he was attached to, to special forces. I think he was an Intel guy, I believe. I don't, I forget exactly what his MOS was. Anyway, he was over in Afghanistan right after the initial invasion. And he, unfortunately he was one of the first casualties. Really? Yeah. And, uh, I remember that that was a big impact because I I had ridden bikes with him for you know like a year or two. And this was a bike shop in Morgantown. Yeah, and we it's not like we were best friends or anything, but he was always even keel, super nice. Didn't even know he was in the National Guard, had no clue. And then all of a sudden, I see Gene Vance, you know, on the news, you know, KIA, and I'm going, what in the world? So I start looking into it. Okay, Special Forces, all right, all right. Um, and then it turns out that Camp Vance in Bagram was named after Gene Vance. Really? Yeah. Wow. So here it is, you know, I'd go to Camp Vance and be like, I used to work with this guy. Yeah. Like, we're in, you know, SF. I'm like, no, in a bike shop. In West Virginia. Yeah. Some guys are quiet professionals, which is the motto. Do you think the military is a good route for guys and gals straight out of high school, let alone straight out of college? I do. I know, for instance, myself, if I would have joined right after high school, I probably would have been forced into having a much more regimented lifestyle and having, you know, that, you know, everybody's afraid of it because they watch, let's just say, full metal jacket and they think, you know, sure. it's terrible. But having structure is a huge thing. And I mean, raising kids, if you keep your kids on a, within structure, it's a lot easier to raise them because they, they do the same thing every single day and it's very easy to get into that. And the military is the same way. You can you can do literally anything. You can learn whatever trade you want to and get all these benefits by just serving. And I think that it's it's a huge thing that that you know people should look into. You don't have to be a combat guy. You don't you know you're not necessarily going to go in and immediately going to go to war. You can go in. You could be an interpreter. You can go in. You can I mean hell they got space command now. They've got all sorts of things. They've got a lot of computer ethical hacking stuff there. I mean, everything right. you could possibly do. So, and there's different routes that you can take. If you don't know what you want to be, don't go in into college and get a giant amount of debt on you for something that isn't going to take you anywhere. And I, I consider myself lucky because my, my degree is liberal arts. What is that going to get me outside of the experiences that I've had in the military? And Instead of just getting something that's just, you know, get a college degree to get a college degree and then be eighty, hundred, twenty thousand, hundred fifty thousand dollars in debt, figure it out. Take two years, join the National Guard, join the reserves, figure out what you want to do. Take a few years before you just immediately go into college and, you know, have that freedom and drink too much and party too much and lose sight of what what the ultimate goal is. Now, again, it's not for everybody. I know many people that got out of high school and knew what they wanted to be. And they went into college and they immediately went after it and they succeeded. So it really depends on, it depends on the person. But if you 
just need a little space, time, make a little bit of money, understand what you want to do and grow into to being an adult and what that means, by all means, I think the military is probably one of the best things to do. And it gives you the GI Bill too. So if you do want to go to yeah. college afterwards. Yeah. I mean, I use my GI Bill. I already had a college degree, but I use my GI Bill to get two master's degrees. Yeah. That's you know, awesome. Afterwards. Yeah. So, Which also pays like a, a housing allowance while yeah. you're studying too, correct? Yeah. A couple hundred dollars a month. So I'm a big proponent of the military. Again, it's not for everybody, but everybody, you know, the the people that are out there that are going, no way I'd ever join the military, or I don't want my kids to join the military, or I don't want to go to war or whatever political aspect that you have. Look at it like this. It's better than just going to community college and floundering around until you figure out what's going on. You can go into something and be like, you know what? I'm interested in being a mechanic. Is that what I want to do? You go in, you can get a lot of training. Yeah. And then you get out and you have a trade. Having a trade is much more valuable than having a degree. Definitely. I agree. I didn't, I didn't realize that back in the day while I was in college, but I mean, it's even more prevalent these days. I feel like. Oh yeah. When I got out of the military, I was like, God, why did I just, it's like I wasted I'm not going to say I wasted time because I didn't waste time. I learned things. I learned about myself. I still joined the military. I'm not going to, I don't regret any part of my path. But if I would have thought about it, I would be like, you know what? Maybe I take a year or two, join the National Guard. Yeah. Figure out what I want to do. Yeah. Another good route. So we talked about the Green Beret Foundation a little bit ago. Are there any West Virginia nonprofits that you know of that you'd like to highlight? Yeah, there's one. It's actually called Operation Welcome Home. And, um, I think it's up in Morgantown. I was looking them up. There's, there's quite a few different ones, but what I like about this is that it, it's helping transitioning veterans get out and find employment. And like I mentioned before, there's a lot of guys that get out and they just don't know what they're good at. I mean, hell, I know a lot of guys that were spectacular team guys, super smart and incredibly intelligent guys, you know, no multiple languages, they get out and they don't know what to do because all they've done is run and gun for so long that they're like, well, I'm just going to be a security guard. Right. Nothing wrong with that. By all means, do it. But these are some of the most brilliant guys I've ever met in my life. And I'm like, you could literally be the CEO of these companies and understand how to skirt the political lines, understand how to skirt, uh, not skirt, not how to balance the political lines, how to understand how to, to lead instead of just I think that's huge, the leadership uh, aspect, management, yeah. Leading, being a leader and being a boss or a manager, two different things. You can lead as being a manager. Most people aren't. Right. But this this, uh, foundation, it helps these guys out. It it lets them dissect what they did in the military and get them jobs and say, hey, look, you're good at this. You'd be a good, you know. Let's, let's find jobs here for you. Let's yeah. help you write your resume. Let's 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 do all these things. Keep that motivation going. Okay. Yeah, so, I'll, I'll have to check that one out. That's cool. Yeah. What about uh, a West Virginia small business? Are there any of those that you'd like to highlight? When I say when I think of small businesses, I want to say this: the best thing to do, period, is to shop locally, and it doesn't matter where you are. I'm not going to highlight anybody specific, but I would definitely say the best thing to do is to shop locally, wherever you're at. Go to your local store. So instead of driving 20, 30 minutes to a Walmart to get something that's cheap, that's made, you know, overseas, that's not going to last you very long, save that gas, go to your local place, support your local stores, period. Because 
you know, they always say it takes a village to, to raise a child. Well, it also takes a village to maintain a village. And you have to, you have to keep that. You know, it's something I love about this little town that we live in and, and you know, Pinehurst and Southern Pines and Aberdeen. You know, a lot of people just shop locally. They're adamant about it. And, you know, in West Virginia, that, that's, that's one thing that I would say is, is definitely, you know, keep that in mind. Always shop local. Yeah, I like support, it. Support your your neighbors because guess what? Your neighbor is going to support you. What's your favorite place to eat at when you go back to West Virginia? <laughs> so I don't know if it's still there. It was a little sandwich shop that was right across the street from the university. It was on University Avenue, Daily Grind. Jay's Daily Grind. Jay's Daily Grind. Yeah. And I loved Jay's Daily Grind. I would go there every single day and get one of two sandwiches, a cup of coffee, and study for whatever I had to do. And it, the sandwiches were just a, it was just a sandwich, but for some reason they were just so good, and they were just the best sandwiches. That, and every time I go back to West Virginia, and especially Morgantown, I try to go back to Jay's Daily Grind and and have a sandwich. Nice. What's your favorite season in West Virginia? I would say all of them, and the reason why is because around here we don't get many of the seasons. Uh, what I love about West Virginia is because the hardwood trees and the colors that you get in fall, but you also get winter. And then when, you know, spring comes, all those hardwood trees and everything else start to bloom. And then you get your summers that, you know, if it gets to be 88 degrees, it's pretty hot. Yeah, yeah. A lot better than 102 down here. Right. What, uh, you have a favorite landmark that you uh, think of? Rocks. Seneca Rocks. Okay. Or Cooper's Rock. Either one of those. Did you mountain bike a lot out? At oh, yeah. Cooper's Rock. That was like, you know. They test mountain bikes out there. Like Cannondale used to test their mountain bikes yeah. at Cooper's. I don't know if they still do. Yeah, Cooper's Rock was a, I love Cooper's Rock. I mean, I used to mountain bike constantly. I probably rode 25 miles a day. Really? Loved it. I mean, it, I used to, I used to ride my bike to, to work, to, to school, to, to everything. Yeah. Parking was such a pain in the butt that, you know, it was, and I guess everything's changed. I haven't been to Morgantown for a couple of years since having kids. So, uh. <laughs> What no longer there. <laughs> All these places are no longer there. So what's a book you would recommend people to read for what life in general life? And what's, what's your favorite book? Oh, I've got too many favorite books. Um, John L. Plaster's SOG and secret commandos. I've read multiple times term limits by, uh, Vince Flynn. There's quite a few different ones. I mean, I, I don't know. I, uh, let's see Bernard Cornwell. Okay. Books. I've, I've read the John L. Plaster's and I need to read it again. I've read it, yeah, multiple times, and it's just so good that yeah. I definitely recommend that as well because I don't think people realize just how harrowing some of those missions in Vietnam were and just what these guys are doing well, back then. What I liked about that book primarily is, is the fact that everything that we've seen in popular culture about Vietnam is that nobody wanted to be there as a bunch of draftees, and they were forced to go over there, and then when they come back, they're treated like trash. And that's kind of a, I would say, a pretty big myth about the majority. Yeah, a lot of that happened, mainly in certain larger cities where people can't quite understand different spectrums of what's going on. So they just want to force their their own opinion on you. But with John L. Plaster, I mean, these guys, they went, they, you want to talk about live by, with, and through their, their endage. I mean, they brought, you know, this minority population of the Montagnards to the States because they were so oppressed. I mean, the Vietnamese didn't like them. The Chinese didn't like them. Nobody liked them. And they had been there for, for you know, centuries. And now there's a community of them yeah. in North Carolina. Yeah, exactly. And, and the, you know, they're, they're fierce warriors, but incredibly loyal people. And again, 
they're mountain folk. So depending on the way that you treated them depends on the way you're going to get treated yourself. And um, we'll go back to the, the heroism. If you did a movie specifically on verbatim accounts of what happened to some of these guys, like uh, Bob Howard, for instance, I think he's put in for the Medal of Honor three different times. Right. And everybody says he should have gotten it to three times, which is you can only get it once. You know, most decorated SF soldier and I think soldier period, and more so than Audie Murphy. Right. Audie Murphy. You know, you read these things. If they made a movie specifically of just what they did, you'd every the entire population would be like, no way it happened. You know, yeah. some Rambo stuff. Nobody ever did stuff like that. And these guys did it every single day. I mean, they'd go out for, it'd take them a day to walk less than a click because they're not making any noise. A click means a kilometer. They're not making any noise. And then they'd take on an entire battalion worth of guys. Right. 200 plus guys. It, it, yeah, it blows my mind every time I read it. And I'm sure you've probably seen it, but if if you guys out there have not, I would uh, also recommend to YouTube Roy Benavidez. Oh, yeah. And, and listen to him tell his story because that's another one that's just mind-blowing yeah i mean benavidez um there's quite a few I, I forget the guy's name but he was one of those he was gut shot in front of a vc compound and he was just left there to die and he wasn't a religious guy or anything but he had a, a, i think a wife and a daughter at home for three or four days he was just baking in the sun and bleeding to death wow and dying of dehydration and they, the guy got the, he said, look, there's somebody up there. I could use a little bit of help. And then all of a sudden he had enough strength to go on his, his, um, his knees and then be able to, to crawl a little bit. And then all of a sudden he's up on his, his feet after three or four days of yeah. being in the sun with a gut shot. Yeah. Like the VC gave up on him because they thought he was dead. And then all of a sudden he's, he's you know, a mile or, or, or two out, collapses, looks up, just happens to see, you know, this, this Huey happened to be one of his buddies up in the Huey that was like, there's a guy down there. He repels down, picks him up, gets him out there, and he survives. I mean, just the, the accounts in that book and what these guys did. You want to talk about the crucible for Special Operations Forces? It's what they did in Vietnam. Right. It blows my mind every time. But Nick, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate you coming over and uh, sharing these stories with us and and giving everyone a kind of a firsthand account of, you know, being a veteran, being in special operations, specifically special forces and, and kind of what you went through in Afghanistan. So, yeah, I mean, thank you very much. There's a lot of us out there, you know, that's, um, you see a veteran, hire them, you know, know that you're going to be getting at least a, a standard level of a employee. And if you see an SF guy, literally, you can just ask him to do anything and he'll probably be able to do it. And he won't stop until he does it perfectly. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us on Creeks to Peaks, The Understory, the podcast that highlights West Virginians both near and far. If you enjoyed the podcast, want to hear other West Virginia success stories, or would like to donate to other Flag Spruce Initiative projects, please visit www.flagspruce.org. Also, feel free to reach out to us on Instagram. We'd love to hear any recommendations you have on other people that you might consider part of West Virginia's understory. Thanks, and have a good one.